Welcome to Level Up, a FEMA audio project for practitioners, where communities share their stories and expertise about building resilience and reducing risk from a disaster. The Morongo Band of Mission Indians embodies resilience. 20 miles from Palm Springs, its reservation spans over 34,000 acres. It runs between the high peaks of the San Bernardino and San Jacinto Mountains and across the rangelands of the Banning Pass. Most of its 3,600 residents belong to the Pass Cahuilla. This includes the Serrano, Cahuilla, and Capeno indigenous groups. Like many tribes in the Americas, the Morongo Band of Mission Indians endured centuries of violence, displacement, and forced assimilation at the hands of Spanish, Mexican, and American colonizers. Yet, time and time again, Morongo leaders continue to secure the tribe's future through ingenuity and resilience. What started as a modest bingo hall in 1983 has grown into the Morongo Casino Resort and Spa. It is one of the largest tribal gaming facilities in the country. The casino is the main source of income for tribal members. It also gives them greater economic security. The Morongo Band of Mission Indians also shows resilience in its approach to mitigation planning and action. It worked with Riverside County to be part of the county's multi-jurisdictional hazard mitigation plan. FEMA approved that plan in August 2018. Working together created new opportunities for all groups. It opened up new paths for federal funds and led to mutual aid agreements. If a disaster hits, the tribe can now share resources with neighboring communities. What follows is a conversation between two friends and former coworkers. Floyd Velasquez is the Emergency Services Administrator for the Morongo Fire Department, Tribal Police Department, Emergency Management Department, and Casino Public Safety. Jesse Johnson was its Emergency Services Coordinator. He now is a Grants Management Specialist with FEMA Region 9 and works as the Tribal Point of Contact for Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Grants. This episode explores how the Morongo Band of Mission Indians use the power of collaboration to create networks of support and greater resilience. This episode was recorded in July 2022. Okay, so are we able to talk a little bit about the history of mitigation planning by the tribe? Well, tribes have been doing mitigation for hundreds of years. They are in tune with what's happening in their environment. They know what's happening by the seasons and they know what they need to plan for. You were the biggest part of getting it into a plan when we joined teams with the county. The county and us now have a, a great relationship, and I think it was because we stuck our foot in the door when they were trying to close it. But we have a great relationship. As a matter of fact, we're the only tribe, to my knowledge, to have a mutual aid agreement with Riverside County. So it's worked into a great thing. We can call Anybody all the way up the ladder at Riverside County Emergency Management Department, Riverside EMD, we've been great partners with the county. We've lent them different resources. They've helped us immensely. There's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of neighboring jurisdictions in that county. We have 13 tribes in that county, and we all work together and do everything we can to be together. And why would you say that it was an important step for, for Morongo? Because when we do have an earthquake, that's what our biggest fear is. When that does come, we have some of the oldest bridges 
in the interstate that are going to completely cut us off. And if we don't have some type of a relationship with the county and the state and and the Bureau of Indian Affairs and stuff like that, we are not going to be able to get any help anytime soon. So uh, it's great that they know that they can count on us to take care of the local jurisdictions that are stuck in between these mountains, what they call the pass area. We've got the facilities and the places for them to offload them if they can get them to us. We have plenty of places to land helicopters. We have an airport that's right on the outskirts of our reservation that fits into the state's and the county's plans. And we have the capability of distributing all of the commodities that are delivered to this pass area. Would you be able to describe some of the projects on the reservation that have been made possible through the partnership? Or is it something that the tribe has pursued on its own? So when there's fires or things of that nature or freeway closures or train derailments or things like that, we have a seat at the table in incident command to being able to give our two cents of what's happening on our reservation. We can protect cultural and historic parts of the reservation without them destroying them that have been around for thousands of years here on this reservation. And we just don't need bulldozers running through those things that have because that'll destroy them quicker than anything else. That's the biggest help with emergency management portion. With climate change, the reservation is experiencing more extreme natural hazards. The Morongo Band of Mission Indians is working on its own and partnering with federal agencies to reduce these risks. I'm sure most people are familiar with the Apple and El Dorado fire that happened here. I didn't mention earlier, but I am a tribal elder and a tribal member and born and raised on the reservation, lived on the reservation for the last 40 years or so. My grandparents and parents have lived here for all of their lives. And we have never had a fire that has burned from about the 2,000-foot level all the way to 9,000 feet from one end of the reservation to the other. And it has made a significant problem for us to deal with in trying to figure out how we're going to deal with the debris flow. So because of those fires, we did got the BEAR team, which is the Burn Area Emergency Response, out through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They came out with hydrologists and all of those people and told us what needed to be done to stop the mass flooding and destroying homes downstream where all of these tributaries and canyons join into the three rivers that we have going through the reservation when there's rain. And they funded for three years for us to be able to clean those tributaries, put up K-rails, and clean them after every single rainstorm. And that was a big, big help We had a flood that happened, a major rainstorm that happened on Valentine's Day and washed out roads and uh, washed out our canyon. We, We have our own water system and the storage tanks and the water pumps for those are in one specific canyon out of the three major canyons that we have on the res. 
and the roads were impassable. The roads weren't supported, and we had to declare a disaster. And we did that with the county because we were afraid that we would not reach our threshold with FEMA, so we went under the county with that one. The better part of that plan and the learning process with that is to file with both, file with FEMA and file with the county because when FEMA comes out and does the preliminary damage assessment and they say you're under the threshold, you're not going to qualify, you only have so many days to climb on with the county, which it's 30 days. That's a good example of how a relationship between the tribe and the county can have been developed and led to a great outcome and be able to implement mitigation efforts and use funding that's available through a fairly easy process, so to speak. So let's move on and maybe talk about opportunities to share resources. You know, the important part of any tribe and any customs and traditions that go with it is that the tribes always want to help the neighboring jurisdictions. And you know, there's times that we need them, and, and when we had that Valentine's Day flood, uh, the county came through. We were able to climb on with them, as per some of the other tribes, too. So it's a two-way street. You know, the county has come to us. They had a water problem with a mobile home park that was took uh, about 15 days to get water restored back to that property in that mobile home park. We have military-grade water buffaloes that can be filled and refilled with clean drinking water. When we have fires in this particular area, the Sheriff's Department and the Highway Patrol have mobile emergency command centers, but they're a long way away because the county's so big. They only have a couple of them, so they borrow ours a lot. Is that all part of mutual aid? Correct. Like I stated before, we're the only tribe that has a mutual aid agreement with the county. But also, most of it has to do with helping out each other. But we have the mutual aid agreement so that if there is a disaster declared for that or the FMAG, the Fire Management Assistance Grant, that's what they call it, but to help pay for the fire that is beyond the capability of the local jurisdiction, we can get paid for the stuff and because we have to keep fuel in it and make sure everything keeps running and then all of that appropriate stuff. So it makes it nice because we have the mutual aid agreements and we have the mutual aid agreement with the neighboring city of Banning and we have it with three or four of the other tribes here in the county and we have one mutual aid agreement with a tribe in the Central Valley. We have that for the reason that if we are having the earthquake here or any disaster, they're probably not going to be as affected as we are and they're going to be more likely to be able to help us in the local tribes or jurisdictions because they're going they're in the same battle we are. Perfect, perfect. Now, how would you define the mutual aid agreement? How would you define a mutual aid in general? Yeah, we definitely look at it as helping, and we don't necessarily need the mutual aid agreement to help somebody. But we have made the point and proven to the tribes that it's important for us to get mutual aid agreement so that we can get reimbursed for items that they need to support or that we need to support. We can pay them for what we're doing, all of that stuff. And it doesn't matter what it is, water, generators, tents, whatever the case may be. But again, the most important thing to tribes is just trying to be a good neighbor and, and make sure that 
the things that we need when it happens to us, it's reciprocated. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that made me really, not only growing up in the neighboring town of Banning and having friends from the reservation, tribal members, but really seeing it from the inside, understanding the kindness and willingness of tribes to help one another and the neighboring jurisdictions. That's real important. So it's great. And that's great to be able to see that relationship have grown. Now let's kind of move on a little bit into mitigation as a tribal nation. How has the hazard mitigation plan changed how you view mitigation, planning, and action? Well, the most important part of it is is that some of the items that are needed for you to mitigate a problem, you just can't afford. So because we have a hazard mitigation plan, we've been able to work with FEMA and we've been able to get the BRIC grant going, which, by the way, is Building Resilient Infrastructure and Community. So because of that, we're trying to apply for grants. And by the way, because we signed up for that initial technical assistance, the BRIC people are coming out and helping us write and do everything we need to do to make sure that we can put the best foot forward when it comes to submitting the grant. Direct technical assistance is non-financial assistance provided through FEMA's Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program, also known as BRIC. Direct technical assistance or DTA, works to enhance a community's capacity to design equitable solutions that advance community-driven objectives, supporting their efforts to put together a thorough BRIC application, from pre-application activities to grant closeout. So what do you think tribal nations can teach non-tribal jurisdictions about hazard mitigation? There's a real good example that I can think of with tribes teaching people stuff that the tribes that live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, I can't think of which one it is right now, but they live on the bottom floor, and all of a sudden, they got flooded out, completely flooded out. The whole village was gone, but they couldn't find any people. They couldn't find any remnant. Then they got to looking around, and they found the people on higher ground. And they said, when all the hydrologists and everybody came and they said, how did you know that you were going to get flooded out? Why did you move the day before the flood actually happened? And they said, the comment was that the river puts off an odor, a different odor. And some of the elders knew about it. So when the water started smelling, they packed up and left because they knew they were going to get flooded because it had happened to them in the past. And the hydrologists and all the people that were trying to figure out how all this was going to work had no clue of any of that. They didn't even know the water smelled. Our stories are passed on from elder to the younger and with stories and bird singing and, and all of that. And where we're at, we really don't have a whole lot of that insight from nature. We're more into preserving the grounds and, and sacred grounds and territories that were ours, which leads to a very good thing is that some of our ancestral grounds are not attached to the reservation. We were moved here. We were a group of Kauai Serrano Indians that were all over this whole valley. And our summer home was up in the Big Bear area. And this was our winter home because it's warmer. Sometimes it don't feel like it, but it, it's warmer. But we need to protect all of our lands, all of our ancestral lands, even if it's not on our reservation. And most of the counties have done a great job with that, with 
part of the building process is that it has to go through the tribes to be able to sign off to make sure it's not ancestral ground. As Floyd explains, building relationships is key to boosting resilience. Well, about three years ago, we started having our chiefs meeting, our police chief, our fire chief, our uh, public safety chief, and our disaster preparedness managers meeting, monthly meeting. And our fire chief said, why don't we invite the battalion chief from the area? So we invited him. And we just kept inviting people and kept inviting people. We are now having a monthly meeting, first responders meeting, pre-COVID for about 50 to 60 people. And they're all first responders. They're all from the pass area. We have the police departments, the fire departments, the sheriff's department, the district attorney's office, the sheriff's tribal liaison unit. Caltrans comes. The DOJ comes now. We don't have an agenda. Morongo buys the food. And we sit and we talk with the people that we're having problems with. So if we're having a problem with the sheriff's department, that they're not answering our calls right, I can go right to the commander of the station that's here having lunch with us and get that straightened out. It's a great platform, an example of a platform of fostering the relationship and having built off of that mutual aid and being a good neighbor. We have another group that you didn't bring up, but we have the SoCal Tribal Emergency Managers Group. It's all the tribes in Riverside County. We meet quarterly. We also invite the Intertribal Long-Term Recovery Foundation, and we just pass along information. And, and all the local jurisdictions that have tribal liaison units attend. And then once they're done, they leave, and then we have a tribal-only section. But that's the only way the federal government's going to get into every tribe. You've got to find out when they're having something and when they're doing some type of a meeting or, or something and attend and find the one person that you can talk to and deal with and you'll get in. It also leads into um, the next question and kind of an overarching question of how can outside jurisdictions in the federal government be more collaborative and fostering um, positive relationships with tribes? Every tribe is different. There are some tribes that don't want the federal government's help at all. There are tribes that won't take a disaster declaration to FEMA. It's just tough. Like I said with the county, how we stuck our foot in the door when they closed it. That's basically what you got to do. The number one thing that the federal government can't do is just say because it worked with one tribe, it's going to work with the other tribes. Just because you've worked with one tribe, that just means you've worked with one tribe. Because we all have different... Some tribes have constitutions. Some tribes, like us, we deal on customs and traditions. So we deal with only the way it's been in the past. You know, it's a lot easier to deal with somebody in a disaster or an emergency when you know the person and have contacted with them, had contact with them before, and you really do know them. Yes, the CONFAB meeting is just a couple hours, but... You know, when you break bread with somebody, there's, there's a lot said for that. All tribes are different. The Morongo Band of Mission Indians can share resources with its neighbors. But the vast majority of tribal groups are severely under-resourced and underserved. As in all communities, respect, reciprocity, and putting in the time are key to building meaningful relationships. We thank Floyd Velasquez and the Morongo Band of Mission Indians 
for sharing their stories and insights with us. This episode of Level Up was produced by FEMA Region 9's Mitigation Division and Resilience Action Partners. It was made available to you through a partnership with the Georgetown Climate Center. The Georgetown Climate Center serves as a resource to state and local governments, working to cut carbon pollution and adapt to climate change impacts. We thank them for helping to strengthen our community of hazard mitigation and climate adaptation professionals. For additional information and access to the Climate Center's Adaptation Clearinghouse, with thousands of free legal, policy, and planning resources and case studies, visit georgetownclimate.org. To learn more about the topics and programs mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes.